You may be seated. Because he lives, everything about us changes. How we think, how we spend our time, where we will spend eternity, what we do with that which God has given us. And I'm grateful for you for your continuing giving and investing in the ministry of Sherwood, whether it's been through online or in the buckets as you come in the door or whether it's you've dropped it by the church. It's allowed us to do ministry in remarkable ways, as you saw in the video in the 411 with our Bible school and being able to connect in some of the poorest neighborhoods in our community and to love on children and to love on kids and to invest in them. That doesn't happen without your support. That doesn't happen without your investment in what God is doing in this place. Today, we want to pray specifically for an area of great concern across our land, and that's schools and children and single parents that are trying to figure out what do you do if you're doing virtual school. People are trying to figure out what do you do if you don't have the normal schedule. There's so much going on. And if we aren't careful, children are going to fall through the cracks. And they're going to be damaged by all this. But nobody loves the kids in this world more than Jesus does. And nobody wants the best for them more than Jesus does. So I want us to pray for God to give wisdom to educators, to parents, and to children that we can take that which the enemy means for evil and that God could turn it to good. So would you join me in praying right now? Father, all across this world, people are trying to figure out school, educating and training children. And there's fear and there's uncertainty, but you are not panicked in heaven and you care more for the upbringing and the welfare and the nurturing of children than any of us ever could. And so I pray, Father, for administrators, for teachers, for parents, for single parents, for two-income parents, for those that are trying to figure it out on campus, off campus, online. And I pray in the midst of it all that you would help us to capture the hearts of children to be lifelong learners and to understand that life does throw curves, but that God is sovereign and he is in control. So I pray for everyone connected that has children or grandchildren in school. Father, for teachers, for parents. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this anxiety, there would not be anger and angst, but there would be a calm assurance that you are going to guide us as we walk by faith through all of this. May every teacher, every campus, every virtual classroom, may there be some way that the message would go across, put your hope in God, that some way the message would be, Jesus loves the children of the world. And may we as believers be a lighthouse and a catalyst to that truth, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship.
standing here Not knowing how we'll get through this test But holding on to faith you know best Nothing catches you by surprise You've got this figured out And you're watching us and now when it looks as if we can't win You wrap us in your arms and step in And everything we need you supply You've got this in control And now we know that you made When our backs were against the wall And it looked as if it was over You, you made a way And we're standing here Only because you made a It's because of you and nothing we've done To deserve the love and mercy you've shown But your grace was strong enough To pick us up and you, you made a way When our backs were And it looked as if it was over Cause what? 
think about the world in which Jesus entered in the fullness of time, God sent a Savior, but it was not a perfect time. It was not a perfect world. It was a fallen world. It was the time when the Roman Empire had captured the known world that they treated people with little mercy and little compassion. Children were considered non-important. Women were considered products, marriages were arranged, women had little voice and little right to say anything. It was a male-dominated world, and I don't mean just male-dominated, I mean women were not considered of value. They were just to be used. And you add to that that the average life expectancy at the time of Jesus was probably about 30 years of age. Most children died before they ever grew up. And Jesus shows up in that world and says, I have answers and I have hope. That there's something else that you need to know in this kind of world. The problem with the world then and the problem with the world now is that we typically do not judge what's going on in the world by what the Bible says, but we judge it by our experiences. And so we say things right now, like we've never gone through anything like this before, but people before us have. They have gone through the Black Plague, and they have gone through the Bubonic Plague, and they have gone through polio and smallpox and millions and millions and millions of people dying with no vaccines ever on the horizon. So this is, this is not the first crisis our world has gone through. But if we're not careful, we will not look to the Word of God in any situation and we'll only look at our own experiences and say, well, I think and I feel and what I know is, and in the process we will miss asking the question, what does God say? What does he think about this? And so Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 10, and we're talking about marriage, money, and the master. That's about as broad a category as I can give you because that's what he covers in most of chapter 10. There was a law of convenience, and the Pharisees were in two camps on the subject of marriage and divorce. They were in the camp of a very liberal interpretation of that or a very strictly conservative interpretation of that. And before we jump into this first point on accusation, accommodation, and, and absolutes, let's just all admit, none of us have been immune from the impact of divorce on our families. If you have, you are the exception and not the rule. None of us have been immune. There's no such thing as a painless divorce. It brings grief. It brings sorrow. 
It can bring anger. It can bring bitterness. It brings brokenness. But you don't give up teaching truth just because people think, yeah, but I don't think that works. Jesus kept teaching truth even though some people weren't practicing it and they were looking for loopholes. Kind of sounds like uh, somebody was trying to build Reno somewhere in the Galilee area for a quick and easy divorce. Chapter 10 and verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and even send her away. Now, the first thing you need to see in this is their question wasn't sincere. They didn't really want to know. They were testing him. They were jabbing at him. They were trying to stir up trouble. Remember, John the Baptist lost his head for criticizing what Herod had done with his marriage. Jewish law at the time said a woman was thought of as a thing, a piece of property. A man could divorce his wife, but a woman really had no rights, no matter how she was treated. And the law that they're referring to is found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. But look at what Jesus says. So they're asking, you know, what do you think? He says, what does Moses command? They quote Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that in every case of divorce, someone's heart gets hard. It gets cold, it gets indifferent, it gets hard. I've, I've done a lot of weddings, and I try to tie the knot really, really tight. Uh, but I can tell you, I've also seen people that look at each other standing in front of a preacher with all their friends and their family spent all this money on a wedding and didn't spend time on marriage counseling and on investing in the development and dealing with issues. And I've watched those same tears of joy turn to tears of sorrow. It's always about a hardness heart. Love can become hard. It become apathetic and hard and hateful. Something happens in the heart of one or both that leads them to say, we don't want to be here anymore. The word divorce means to send away. Now they're asking Jesus, are you on the liberal interpretation side of this or the conservative interpretation side of this? And Jesus, in fact, just takes them back to Scripture. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus takes them. They, they want to know about Moses. He asked them, what did Moses say? So they're talking about Deuteronomy. Jesus backs up to the book of Genesis. And he says, this was God's original intent, to leave. It is a strong word. It means to leave behind or depart. Now, this is just the Michael Cat insertion of thought at this time. To leave means 
Every time something happens that you don't like in your marriage, you don't call your mama and your daddy. You learn to work it out. You try to work it out. You don't pack your bags and go to mama's every time you disagree. What, if you did, why'd you leave mama's in the first place? Leave, to move away, to separate. And, and I realize people live, live in the town where they grew up and they, they live close to their parents. I want to tell you, best thing we ever did is we moved 21 hours away from our parents when we got married and we had to figure it out. It was just me and Terry and Jesus and a $25 a week food budget. And we'd go and buy canned corn in a big wholesale place by the case and fish sticks by the case. And I never want to eat a fish stick again for the rest of my life. And what are we having tonight? Fish sticks. We thought we were in the middle of a great awakening when somebody invited us over for homemade pizza. I mean, we thought revival had come to America. It was just us. And, I, and our parents came to see us like in a year and a half, once each. We had to learn. We had to figure it out. We, and by the way, you didn't have free long distance calls. You had a hard line and you had to call. And you know, it was when you made that phone call and your dad said, son, it's not the weekend. Why are you calling right now? It's cheaper on the weekend when you realize I'm up here and I got to deal with it. I've got to figure it out. We're supposed to leave and cleave literally to glue or cement. In other words, God's plan was that it wasn't easy to break a covenant. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is a picture of a covenant. It's a picture for us of the covenant between Christ and the church. He's the bride and the bridegroom. And so let me just give you three quick things out of Genesis. First of all, the actions of God, he made them male and female. He made them male and female. Now, this will offend somebody in our politically correct age, but marriage is between a male and a female. Amen. That's the way God designed it. That's the only way it works. Marriage is between a male and a female. Secondly, the desires of God. For this reason... For this reason, a man shall leave, and the two shall become one. And then the warning of God. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So God's plan was for intimacy and permanency, but God also knows the hardness of man's heart. And sin is sin, and it reveals itself in a lot of different ways. And I would never encourage anyone to stay in a marriage where there is verbal or physical or sexual abuse. You ought to turn that sucker in and he ought to go get to find out what the inside of a cell looks like. I wouldn't encourage anybody to allow abuse. I don't think that's, God says, let them beat you no matter what. That, that's just wrong. And here's the other thing before we move on from this. Marriage is intended to be permanent and we should encourage it to be permanent but we should not pounce on people who are divorced because you may never know all the story. You may assume you know the story or you may know one side of the story but you may never know 
all the story. And if the church ought to do anything, it should extend grace to people that have gone through the emotional, physical, mental turmoil of divorce. And if they can't come to us, where else are they going to come? So we ought to show grace. Amen? Amen. And by the way, despite what a guy told me early in my ministry, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ. Second point, all on the altar is too much for some. Now, on the way to the cross, there are five conversations that reveal some deficiencies in how people were viewing Jesus and viewing discipleship. So let me just give you these five, and we're basically going to walk through these verses with a few comments because you need to see where we can get off track. These are five detours, if you will. These are five dead ends that need to be addressed. First of all, a lack of compassion, verses 13 through 16. A lack of compassion. Verse 13, and they were bringing, that word means they kept on bringing. This was not just one or two kids. This, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked or reprimanded them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. Now at the time of Christ, it was very common for people to find a prominent rabbi and to ask that rabbi to bless their children. It, this, this was nothing unusual, and Jesus would have been considered a prominent rabbi. And so people were bringing and kept bringing. He was, crowds were following him. And they're bringing their kids, and they want Jesus to bless them. And the disciples are going, you know, he's too busy for kids. He's just too busy for kids. They, these people need to stop bringing their kids to Jesus. You, you know why we have parent-child dedication? You know why we have a sign-out in the atrium? It's because kids matter. It's because kids matter. And, and if we don't treat them right, then guess what? We live in a society that doesn't want to treat the elderly right and doesn't want to let the children have a right to be born. And somewhere in the middle, we all lose. We all lose. And Jesus gets indignant with them. And he says, you let those children come to me. Secondly, there's a lack of commitment, a lack of commitment. Verses 17 through 27, we know this is the story of the rich ruler. He's never called young, but we call him young because he ran. I don't know why running makes you young, but anyway. Jesus is not making a case that there's a dispersion of wealth because there are stories in the Bible of very wealthy people like Abraham and Boaz and Job. But he's warning against greed. And so in verse 17, he comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving 
for he was one who owned much property. Now here's what this rich ruler was trying to do. Remember, most people in this world, and the Jews, this was a part of them not understanding the grace of God. This was a part of them not understanding how Abraham was saved. The just shall live by faith. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned unto him righteousness. But the Jews had developed a system. If you keep the rules, if you dot the I's, if you cross the T's, if you behave, you'll get to heaven. They had developed a system of getting to heaven by good works. And so what this rich ruler is doing, he's coming to Jesus and saying, all right, I'm a good guy. I I do all the right things. So tell me that one thing left that I need to do that ensures that when I die, I get to heaven. He's asking about what I do, not who I am. Because doing comes out of being. And so what this guy is saying, I know there's got to be just one thing. Jesus will just give me that one thing. And if it's, you know, I'm supposed to write a check to Salvation Army or give all my clothes to Goodwill or whatever it is, he just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then I can live the rest of my life by doing that one thing and know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That great deed, whatever that great deed is. But Jesus uses the same word with him that he used with Peter and James and John. Come, follow me. This young man has come to Jesus implying that since his bar mitzvah, he has been disciplined, he's kept the law, he's been faithful, and he's thought he had it all covered. And Jesus says, there's one thing you're missing. Now, I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. And he looked in his heart and he saw, I love this guy, but this is what's keeping this guy from loving me and following me. So I want to ask you, what's your little thing that's keeping you from following Jesus? What's what's the thing that if you went to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would say, Go do this and come follow me. And in your head and in your heart, you say, I can't do that. I can't do that. Whatever that is, that fill-in-the-blank is, that's what's keeping you from life in Christ. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. You cannot keep enough rules to get into heaven. It is following Jesus. It is a step of faith. It is by surrendering to him and whatever it is that has become big in our eyes instead of God that is overruling who he is in our lives, that's what has to go so that we can get to God. Some people just have things, they say, you know, I'd give my life to Jesus if I didn't have to and fill in the blank. And that's what's going to, whatever the, if I didn't have to, that's what's going to send them to a Christless eternity. It's the, if I didn't have to. So what is it in our lives? You you can't buy your way into heaven. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. So if someone were to come to you and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Are you going to tell them the truth? You see, what we typically do is we say, try harder, do better, turn over a new leaf. 
make a New Year's resolution. None of that gets people into heaven. The only way we get into heaven is by confessing our sin and believing in Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God, died on a cross, raised from the dead, and he's our only hope to get in the door. I'm not going to get into heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm not going to get into heaven because I'm a Baptist. There are going to be a lot of Baptists not going to be in heaven. There are going to be pastors aren't going to be in heaven. The only way I'm going to get through the door of heaven is through the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. That's the only way. So, this man comes to him. He's got the wrong perception about how to get to heaven. Thirdly, there's a lack of contentment. Now, coming right out of this, verses 28 through 31, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we... Now, what he's doing there is he's speaking for all the other disciples. Peter has a way of doing that. We have left important the way he words this. Peter is wording this. Remember, you're coming out of this rich ruler has said, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, go and sell all you've got. And Peter says, we have left aorist tense, meaning we have made a permanent and complete break with that which was between us and you. And we have come to follow you. That's what he's saying in just those two words, have left. Everything and followed you. You could write in the margin by followed you that Peter was really asking, so what's our reward? What do we get? Since we did what we were supposed to do and responded like we were supposed to respond, since we're following you, what do we get? And Jesus said, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. <laughs> That's where it kills the prosperity gospel right there. Man, I tell you what, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to get houses and and brothers and sisters, I'm going to get all this stuff, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now let's just talk about that for a minute. Jesus does tell Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples, serving God pays and it pays well, but it doesn't pay in the way you think it does. You get houses and lands and you get all this stuff. You say, well, that, that's not true, or it is true if you believe the prosperity gospel, or if you look at all of this in context, here's what it means. It means that I have people all around this country that if I were traveling, I could call them and say, hey, I need a place to stay. And they'd say, come on. And for that period of time, their house is my house. Their refrigerator is my refrigerator. I, I got people that I, I don't have, well, I do. I have two half-brothers, and I have a, a half-sister that died when she was born, but I don't have any family that knows I'm their family. But I got family all over the world. I've got family all over the world. I've got the family of God. I've got the family of faith. 
brothers and sisters everywhere. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that when I go to Israel, I just, I love to be, I don't get to see them often. I talk to them every so often. But there are people in other states and in other communities that are not in the ministry. They're just good people. They're just God's people. They just serve and love, and I have relationships with them. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the family of God, and the family of God is a big, big family. Now, sometimes we act like we're not the family of God. But the family of God is a great family. Now, we got some, we got some weird members in the family. I mean, they're, you know, just like you got some cousins that their part of the tree, family tree is just one pole. I mean, it, it, we all got family members like that, but we have a family of faith. And I want you to think about it. Think about through the years, through the centuries, the people that have left their physical family to go overseas to the mission field and they would never see their physical family again. And so they built relationships and they, and they built family-type relationships with other people. Listen, you got a family, you're never alone. You've got a family, and, and the eternal dividends are immeasurable. And you can sit and waste your time trying to figure out how big your mansion is. Hey, the only thing I'd want to ask you if you're trying to figure out how big your mansion is, are you sure you've got one? Do you know that you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Not just because you walked an aisle or got baptized or your mama told you you were saved, but do you know that you are a part of the family of faith? Uh, one of the things that I used to love about Vance Havner, he would walk a lot. and He, he loved to just walk. He, he liked to walk in cemeteries because nobody would talk back to him. So he could just walk through the cemetery and, and just talk to the Lord. you know. But he said every now and then, he said, I'd be in a strange town. I didn't know where I was. And I'd start walking in if... And, and Vance and Sarah lived in this little two-bedroom apartment in Greensboro, and he grew up in this little small house that you could just about fit on this stage uh, where he was born and kept it after his parents died. And, and so he, he never had a lot, didn't own a car, didn't own a car until he was in his 60s. He said he wanted to think about it. Didn't learn to drive until he was 35, first car he ever drove was Billy Graham's car. Took Sarah out on a date. Hadn't been married. He's in his mid-30s. They had two flats on the date. Billy Graham said, I still don't know who changed the tires. But Vance would go walking around neighborhoods and he would see some real manicured yard and, and a nice gate and he'd just walk by and he'd say, Lord, in the new heaven and the new earth, I'd like that one. I'd just, I'd just take that one right there. You know, we do spend a lot of time trying to think about what our mansion is, but hey, it won't be a mansion if Jesus is not there. What makes it heaven is Jesus. Not the streets of gold, not the gates of pearl, not the house we live in. What makes it heaven is Jesus. Peter had left his nets, he'd left his fishing business. He just wants to know if his decision is going to be rewarded. But what we need to understand is God is not some mutual fund or some startup company 
that's going to go from a $5 investment into Amazon. You see, Jesus never watered down the demands of discipleship to get a crowd. He always said what they were. And Jesus always challenged his followers to see the bigger picture. Peter and the other disciples had this access to Jesus, and so they were feeling pretty good about themselves. But Jesus is saying, look, I know what you've done, and nobody's going to get to heaven and say, Jesus, you owe me after all I've done for you. No, he's not going to owe anybody. Fourthly, a lack of concentration. Just quickly on this one, this is the third time Jesus has spoken about the cross. He's talking about leaving and about the blessings that they've just come out of the rich ruler and they weren't paying attention. They're still hoping to ride this wave of popularity and they just missed the cross. They thought they could somehow avoid it. Sometimes we think we can avoid it. Then lastly, there's the lack of compatibility and this is a long part, a lack of compatibility. Verses 35 through 45, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, or sons of thunder, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So beginning in verse 38, Jesus gives the price of greatness. And their attitude about what greatness is is not compatible with the attitude of Jesus. So he gives the price of greatness. He said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism which I, which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with a baptism which with I am baptized, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. What happens is these disciples, these two, are asking for favorable treatment. Cut some corners with me. Give me what I want. And Jesus pulls them aside. The other ten get ticked off. They may have been ticked off because they didn't think to ask it first. But they're ticked off. And Jesus says, this is the way the world leads. The world is always looking for power. The world is always looking for titles. The world is always looking for position. And their great men exercise authority over them. Then Jesus gives them the standard for greatness. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That's the standard. Then he gives them the practice of greatness. Verse 44. And whoever wishes to be first among you, you shall be slave of all. Then he gives them the example of greatness. For even the Son of Man, verse 45, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So James and John are seeking a political appointment. They want to be number two and number three in the order and in prestige. They want to get to the front of the line by a fast pass. They want backstage full access. And Jesus is rejecting 
they're jockeying for power. Jesus is not interested in making you powerful. Jesus is interested in making his name great. And however that happens, we have to be in partnership with that, whether we're known or unknown. Essentially, he tells James and John, you're going to drink the cup and you're going to be baptized with this baptism because James is the first of the disciples that's killed and John would be tortured and exiled on the Isle of Patmos for decades. Here's what Jesus wants us to understand, no matter what the subject is, is that with him it is unconditional surrender and it is unmerited grace. He wants full surrender, not what must I do and then I don't have to worry about anything else. Give me one decision I can make and then I can go live however I want to live. No, Jesus wants unconditional surrender. The message tonight in the last of the Approachable series is on what do you desire. Jesus asked a question in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things I say? Unconditional surrender and unmerited grace. It will take another world to reveal who the great people of this world have been. Historians and biographers write stories about great people and people that have made their mark on history, but I, I'm going to tell you something. There are people that we do not know the names of that in the eyes of God are greater than some of the people that we think are the greatest people that ever lived. It will take another world to show who the great people are. Somebody asked a friend of mine one time, said, do, do you think God will say well done to you? You know, we say that for everybody. I mean, I, I hear preachers and somebody never comes to church, they never give, they never serve, they never do anything. They're here on occasion and then you go to their funeral and they're looking at the family and go, and Jesus said to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. No, he didn't. You say well done to people that have finished a race and have run it faithfully. You don't say well done to somebody that stumbled or never sold out to Jesus. That's not, that didn't get a well done. Hey, serving Jesus is not about a participation trophy. You get a trophy, and you get a trophy, and you get a trophy, and everybody gets a trophy. That's not what serving Jesus is about. Serving Jesus is about putting our hands to the plow. It's about finishing the course. It's about running the race. It's about staying in our lane and doing what God told us to do. And then it's up to God to figure out who are the greatest and who are not. Let's pray together. In just a moment, when you leave, there's a next step desk right out in the atrium. And if you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ today, then I want to encourage you to walk out these doors and to find one of those staff members at that next step desk and tell them that you need to make a decision for Christ. It could be a recommitment of your life. It could be for salvation, that you've never really trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And we want to help you with that next step. If you're online 
and we want to help you with that. You can go online and we'd be glad to pray for you and send you some information to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Life is short at its longest. And what we do for Jesus is the only thing that lasts. The only thing that's going to be in heaven is the Word of God and the souls of men and women. That's what's going to be in heaven. Not all our stuff, not all our ideas, not all our possessions. That's why we're to lay up treasures in heaven. That's why we're to serve God while it is still day. For the night is coming. Father, use these words to encourage those that need to be encouraged, to convict those that need to be convicted, and to stretch all of us to understand that greatness is in humility and in serving. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.